I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying safe and well. One of the great things about this podcast is the opportunity to speak to people who've had a big influence in my own development. One of those people is Dambisa Moyo. Why? Because more than a decade ago, when I was advising the UK Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council on water infrastructure, I distinctly remember picking up and reading Dambisa's first book, Dead Aid, Why Aid is Not Working, and How There's a Better Way for Africa. The book challenged many of the prevailing assumptions about development theory in Africa. For me, it was made all the more powerful and relevant by the backdrop of the global financial crisis. From conferences in Ghana and Nigeria to the World Economic Forum in Cape Town, I listened then to economic ministers debate the merits of Western and Chinese development policy and even the legitimacy of capitalism itself. Since then, Dambisa has gone on to become an incredibly influential and prolific voice on economics, development, political economy, and corporate governance. And she continues to challenge prevailing assumptions, which is why it's great to interview Dambisa on the launch of her new book, How Boards Work. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation. We talk about how the nature of board oversight is evolving, what that means in the context of greater pressure on socio-environmental issues, and why calls to reform capitalism ultimately mean a turn towards a multi-stakeholder model and away from traditional shareholder centrism. Dambisa is a global economist and author who focuses on international business and the global economy. Dambisa currently serves on the boards of 3M, Chevron, Condé Nast, and the Investment Committee of Oxford University's Endowment. And she previously served on the boards of Barclays Bank, Barrick Gold, Seagate Technology, and SAB Miller. She's the author of not one, but four New York Times bestsellers. Her latest book, How Boards Work and How They Can Work Better in a Chaotic World, is out this month, May. Welcome to the podcast, Dambisa Moyo. It's great to have you here, and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Great. I'm really excited about this. So we've got a lot to talk about, but let's start out with your new book, How Boards Work. I'm kind of curious, how did the idea to write this book first come about? Why now? You cover an incredible amount of ground in the book, but I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering if it was one specific area that drove its urgency. Was it the changing nature of board oversight or broader calls around reform for shareholder-centric capitalism? Or was it simply misconceptions about the role that boards play? There were two things, really. One was I felt very strongly, even before COVID hit in earnest last um, year, that it was essential to reassert the arguments for corporations and the private sector and to clearly make the point that um, companies, the role that they play in job creation, innovation, taxes, infrastructure, and of course, the now evolving ESG agenda means that it's really important that uh, corporations continue to have a seat at the table in trying to resolve a whole array of uh, challenges that the world is facing. The other aspect, which was a driver in uh, me writing this book, was really a recognition that people didn't quite understand 
And by people, I mean investors, students at top business schools, even the employees of the boards um, where I served didn't often didn't understand what exactly boards do. If you think about it, uh, boards, which generally are around 12 people at the helm of these organizations, people didn't really have a good understanding of what their mandate was, and in particular, what challenges these companies faced in order to drive corporations forward. And so I felt it was really essential to really uh, capture these two aspects in in thinking about uh, the world moving forward. Obviously, the pandemic is a thread throughout the book, which is interesting, but I'm wondering to what degree did it? animate or change or shift your ideas? Well, in a sense, it kind of bailed me out um, in some (laughs) respect, because I feel that um, corporations were able to showcase their importance in terms of supporting society beyond the sort of standard, oh, they're just there to make money. We saw large hotel chains convert their premises to become sort of makeshift hospitals, We saw um, companies put down their competitive instincts and work together, not just across uh, different pharmaceutical companies, but also working with government in a very animated way, in sort of innovative way in order to deliver on a uh, vaccine in, in really in a short shrift. Um, and, and also we saw corporations really adapt really quickly in terms of uh, moving from um, the sort of status quo and how they operate and how they finance themselves into a world of working from home and adapting to a much more challenged uh, environment, not only when COVID hit at the beginning, but also throughout the uh, response, you know, through COVAX and uh, other uh, initiatives to roll out the vaccines. Hmm. What are some of the structural changes you'd like to see on corporate boards coming out of the book? For instance, you write about establishing a specific ethics committee on boards, which is incredibly interesting. Why is that so important? And how does that sort of reflect, like you said, some of these trends around the popularization of ESG or or greater emphasis on societal and environmental values? So I think um, in order to answer that question, it's important to take a step back and to think about what the fundamental mandate of the board is. And um, I argue in the book that really boards have a three-pronged mandate. They are responsible for oversight of the strategy of the companies um, on which they serve. They are responsible for hiring and in some instances firing the CEO. And they're also responsible more and more for the oversight of this cultural uh, norms of the uh, different organizations. The proposals that I have for upgrading and improving boards, which I should say date back to the 1600s, um, so it did feel like there was we were due for an upgrade, are really centered around these three themes. So with respect to strategy, I make some proposals as to how the board can be much more engaged in that process without overstepping its oversight role. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, already boards do provide that oversight, but there might be ways for boards to be much more um, engaged in terms of how the process for uh, for delivering on strategy actually evolves. And then with respect to hiring and firing the CEO, you know, I did think that there is a lot of scope for upgrading the nature of how we hire and review candidates. Traditionally, and I've written about this recently in a Bloomberg article, but traditionally we've tended to focus on things like 
financial performance? Did this candidate deliver on revenue growth or profitability or cost-cutting strategies? We've also looked at operations. How was their safety record? What was the operational efficiencies? But very scarce. And, and of course, I should say, we also very much focus on, is this person a, a good leader? Are they you know, focused on teamwork, et cetera? But very rarely do we really probe into the ethics of a, a candidate. Um, and more and more through my own experience, but also more generally, it's become clear, whether it was through the Me Too agenda, Black Lives Matter, that ethics and really that sort of moral compass aspects are going to be a, a key pieces of how uh, boards, I think, should evaluate a candidate. And then the last point is just really around the culture of the organization. And this is where the ethics committee comes in. In particular, I think that there's a real opportunity to think about um, these challenges in the ethical and moral compass of the organization more generally, to the extent that corporations are governed by boards and boards provide that oversight, there are some levers that, that the board has, such as compensation and, of course, hiring the CEO, which can help influence what sort of uh, decisions the organization is making um, on some of these more challenged ethical and moral uh, uh, choices that uh, boards are going to have to make, especially around the ESG agenda, and especially where trade-offs uh, exist. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. One interesting thing about the book is you spent a lot of time examining the multi-stakeholder model. And in fact, it's actually been one area that we talk a lot about on this podcast, whether it's from Paul Pullman or from academics being on this in the, in the past. But multi-stakeholder capital, it's often described in these idealized proto-utopian terms as, as kind of a system where everyone's interests are considered. And I'm wondering, from a board's perspective, what are the trade-offs in managing all these relationships? How do you manage different, frankly, sometimes competing stakeholder groups? That could include civil societies, NGOs, corporates, policymakers, and investors. How would you balance the commercial realities of guiding a business from a board perspective against trying to produce socially desirable outcomes? Yes. Yeah, so there's no doubt about it. This is incredibly challenging. I think that the uh, sort of flag was planted in the ground when you look at the business roundtable statement back in 2019. And so that, that to me was really the sort of gun that started the race towards uh, better metrics, better sort of thinking around taking that broad goal of trying to be a better corporate citizens into a much more practical realm. And this is for sure still work in progress. Even before the so whole notion of stakeholder capitalism sort of gathered momentum, companies were already doing a huge part in terms of the global economy, in terms of social and community-based initiatives. And we know that in terms of creating jobs, paying taxes, helping with infrastructure, and of course, really, all importantly, driving innovation. Corporations have been for several, several centuries, but continue to be leaders, an important uh, part of the puzzle for human progress. But to the point around straddling these different stakeholder interests, it is absolutely challenging. And in the book, I go through a whole range of different initiatives that are on the ESG agenda that, you know, in principle may seem easy to execute on, but as a practical matter, incredibly difficult. Everything from climate change to pay equity, 
race and gender parity, uh, issues around data privacy, worker advocacy, all of these things to the sort of untrained eye might seem like no brainers. Why can't we just do that? But as a practical matter and with the responsibility and the fiduciary duty that corporations have, it becomes much more complicated. And if I may just give you some specific examples here without getting into too much detail. But for example, you know, the classic one is the fact that um, there, are, there are now people campaigning on the back of ESG agenda that, um, you know, a fossil fuel company should be defunded, which for some people sounds very attractive given the sort of urgency around the need for climate change and the sort of uh, urgency around an energy transition. However, that kind of thinking doesn't really take into account that there remain about 1.5 billion people on the planet who have no access to energy in a sort of sustainable or cost-effective manner. This type of very aggressive approach around shutting down existing energy sources doesn't also take into account that it's those exact organizations and uh, enterprises that tend to be at the tip of the spear in terms of innovation, the real, to my mind, uh, sources of innovation on where we might have new energy sources and uh, whether it's renewables or green sources in the future. And also, perhaps most crucially, this type of thinking of defunding um, existing uh, enterprises tends not to think about second order effects such as, well, if we shut down these energy sources, we will have more people as a disorderly immigration because people will seek uh, better livelihoods elsewhere. So that's an example of how, on the one hand, you know, reasonable people can agree that uh, climate change is, is an urgent and important area, but there seems to be a lack of uh, understanding or a blind spot with respect to the need for less hasty and more innovative solutions, which is where boards uh, need to step in. Another very quick example, if I may, is uh, data privacy. So, you know, a lot of people, particularly in the West, say, well, I want my data to be uh, held private. It's my own, it's my, you know, I own it and it, it, it's my right. And, that, and that's fair enough. But, you know, at the same time, there there is a recognition more and more that if we want to have, uh, or pharmaceutical companies want to be able to deliver solutions around, you know, the vaccine or, you know, more generally around cancer cures, there is definitely an argument that being able to have bigger data sets matters. And so the question becomes, if they have a footprint in places like China, where the the rules around data privacy may not be as stringent as they are in the West, you know, what does that mean for whether ESG compliance puts a company, a pharmaceutical company at odds um, with investing in China? So again, if you're on the board of a pharmaceutical company, that would be a live discussion. And perhaps again, to the the sort of outsider, they might think of this as being a a straightforward answer. So the book is peppered with a lot of these trade-offs and there are plenty more. I guess one more, if I may, is, you know, we, we all recognize the importance of diversity. The numbers show that it's important. It's absolutely essential for companies going forward, but we don't want to fight discrimination with discrimination. And so by making sure that we have more diversity in the boardroom, in the C-suite, and more generally in the workforce, we don't want to end up basically alienating sort of the the sort of traditional white guy uh, sort of a majority. So it's those type of things that boards have to straddle and think about. To stick on that first example, I mean, what do you think is the appropriate solution in terms of tackling the fossil fuel industry? Is it, if it's not divestment or defunding, is it greater stewardship? Is it shareholder resolutions? Is it, say, on climate type resolutions? I think there has been some frustration in the past that many attempts to gain greater transparency, you know, particularly with the rise of 
Paris Alignment, you know, post the Paris Accord or frameworks like the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. I think it, there's been some difficulty in sort of getting parts of the fossil fuel industry to really buy in to it. That is changing. Critics would say not fast enough. But what do you think is appropriate? Well, I, you know, so I, I, I'm not entirely sure why people would think that there's not enough or not, there's no progress being made. I mean, I see it from many different angles. I happen to be on the board of a large energy company. I'm also on the board or the investment committee of a, a large endowment where they, they are putting a, in, immense pressure on a whole range of, of institutions, not just fossil fuel, uh, you know, energy producers, but also banks in terms of, of this energy transition being a priority. Um, what do I see as a solution? I mean, everything that you've talked about, you know, may be important, but I see those as all very short-term imperatives. I'm in this for long-term sustainable solutions. And so, yes, public policy has a role to play, but ultimately, in order to solve the issues of climate change, we are going to have to have uh, enormous innovation. And I can say for certain, not only the board that I serve on and the energy space, but more generally, the energy sector are investing multiple billions of dollars every year in the whole stack of possible renewables and new innovation. It's just to be clear and to underscore the point, this is an existential crisis for energy companies. So they are investing in solar, in wind, in geothermal, in batteries, biofuels, uh, nuclear, Gen 4. I mean, there are a whole slew of areas. And believe me, if someone on this planet of 8 billion people knew a way to generate energy at scale in a sustainable, cost-effective way, we would have the answer. So the notion that nothing is being done or no stuff is not being done in um, at a rapid clip, I think, is really a, is a narrative that is not borne out, uh, I would argue, in the data um, and certainly not borne out in the the multiple billions of dollars um, that's actually being put to work. I do agree that perhaps where there's, there might be questions of who's on side and who's off side really are led by the fact that there's no sort of uh, unified metrics. But a lot of the energy companies, the banks are now producing partly integrated reports, but also separate reports to explain what they're doing, not only in terms of risk mitigation. So things like CO2 emissions, uh, water intensity, greenhouse gases, etc., but also thinking a lot about upside opportunities. So really putting marginal dollars to work to generate returns. And then really the one other thing where I think we do have a handicap from a global basis is that we're not going to win on this climate change agenda without China and India being at the table. And so I think that um, one of the frustrations that may be uh, embedded in society uh, and certainly with people who are advocates, very aggressive advocates of the ESG agenda is that, you know, they might go for say and pay and these very important uh, initiatives to try and drive board change. But that can only be seen as marginal um, in some respects, uh, because really the global picture demands that China and India be part of that solution. And very often it's hard to move the needle, especially for emerging economies, given their own uh, priorities and, uh, and need for economic success at home. I was going to say, I mean, how much of all of this that we're talking about is a public policy problem? Well, I think that there's no doubt about it that um, visionary governments, we know that from what China is doing right now in technology, 
but also what the United States did back in the 50s around DARPA, the building up of Silicon Valley, you know, Manhattan Project, all these things, the governments that are and public policy that is visionary and really invests in a very sort of thoughtful and uh, innovative way, working in partnership with private sector, to me is the uh, is nirvana. That is the, the that is what we should all be targeting. And in as much as government, for a whole host of reasons that we can get into, has become less data driven, less forward looking, less focused on measured outcomes, sort of much more based on narratives, and even in some instances more corrupt. We're moving further and further away from resolving these issues. It is in that respect, I, I do believe, a, a very much a public policy problem. But at the same time, there, you know, it's not just with climate change, but more generally on the whole suite of ESG that I outlined earlier, whether it's worker advocacy, pay equity, racial and gender equality, issues of data privacy, etc. All these things, in fact, obesity, areas of gun control, all these areas are being forced onto the border agenda, corporate agenda. But actually, there really is a, an important role that government should be playing and public policy should be playing that I would say it's, it's more and more being ceded to the private sector. So, um, yeah, I really do believe that this is why China, to me, is, is where the United States was in the 1950s. We're seeing the Chinese political class really leaning into uh, areas such as digital and technology in a way that is going to serve them well, I believe, in decades to come. And we are, you know, unfortunately, we haven't seen that sort of visionary thinking in the West. And of course, uh, I think all eyes are now on the, the recent Biden proposals around infrastructure, which do have, I mean, of course, highlight high, high level numbers, huge. Um, but if you read through it, this, there are pieces on digitization and all of that is going to be important in terms of meeting that visionary um, goal. I wanted to come back to the book and this idea around kind of culture and, and particularly purpose that boards cultivate. And we've seen this resurgence in interest and even a declaration around purpose by corporates, studies by academics, and even regulators. For instance, in the UK, the Financial Reporting Council has now sort of embedded the idea, the notion of purpose within the UK Stewardship 2020 report. And I'm wondering, again, from a board perspective, how do you balance that tension between, let's call it the purpose movement, you know, and the shareholder movement? Yeah. So look, I think the, uh, in the book, I, I talk about um, the cultural mandate for the board as being separated into two areas. There's the non-negotiables, things like excellence and professionalisms. Really, I, I don't think anybody has any will quibble about the importance of that for organizations to thrive and, and to perform um, as going concerns. Um, the other aspect of this is really about um, these this cultural frontier, which is what you're alluding to, that, you know, there are these uh, lofty goals for corporations to play a broader role in society, things like climate change, as well as racial and uh, gender diversity, and uh, even opining on areas of obesity, etc., um, worker advocacy. Um, uh, and those are for sure fraught with a lot of uh, challenges. There are levers that boards can use to influence change, and we are using them. For example, the obvious one is hiring, who we are hiring and how we evaluate the people that we hire and making sure that they 
either attest or they show that they have some moral commitment, uh, moral compass that shows commitment to these very tough issues, even if they don't, they mean, uh, just recognizing that there's no right and wrong answer. But at the same time, you know, our compensation structures, which, you know, we've done a lot of work and a lot of boardrooms to extend the purview of comp. So long term in uh, uh, long term incentive planning um, is is now really the focus now is moving towards uh, beyond LTIPS and into uh, how do we uh, how do we uh, make sure that um, social, the social and cultural aspects are a big part, sometimes as much as 50 percent of how we evaluate um, our employee base, the CEO, the C-suite, et cetera. Um, so this is not just talk. Um, we really are focusing on converting these big ideals in a practical way into action. And this permeates throughout the organization. The other last point I'll just make is that, you know, we live in a time of technology and, and I think the best boards are taking advantage of that by getting more information from our stakeholders in terms of provenance. So people on our clients and customers, our own employees and uh, including investors are now very interested in everything from what kind of, you know, what are your emissions, your average emissions, your water intensity issues, and what's the average wage you're paying your employees and that kind of information, including how employees view the broader environment that they work in is all easy to get at your fingertips. You know, it used to be we'd rely on a YouGov or an employee survey now through platforms like Glassdoor or the layoff or blind. Um, you can get information unsolicited about how people feel about the sort of cultural moral compass of the organization. And, and indeed, boards are using that too. The idea of the cultural frontier is fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm wondering from your own experience, What's the degree of willingness or even ambition to really push into that frontier? I mean, we've seen, I think, a couple examples. One successful one is, is obviously Paul Pullman at Unilever over the past decade really push into and advance that frontier. On the flip side, we've seen Danone CEO Emmanuel Faber just be pushed out of his role as CEO, trying to do the same thing, but certainly tripping up on some of the more financial metrics in terms of growth metrics throughout the pandemic. Yeah, it's a fine balance. I think that, uh, you know, at a very high level, what we're trying to do in the boardroom is to ensure transparency and consistency. I was just talking to someone yesterday who said, you know, there are a lot of companies came out um, on the back of Black Lives Matter and, and, you know, basically said that they were going to be supportive of it. But many of those same companies said nothing about Asian violence. And so that's an example of where, you know, you have to be seen to be consistent. And it becomes incredibly challenging because in, in some instances, people just don't have a context or a, a really a full understanding of uh, what what a certain situation may mean for their employees or for the broader consumer base. So that's where I'm spending a lot of time is really trying to urge corporations to focus on consistency and transparency. Um, but, you know, beyond that, you know, yes, there are going to be very uh, challenged situations that you've described Danone, um, but obviously PGE is another example of this where, you know, what seem to be good intentions on ESG have, have been described as part of the problem for a lack of performance on the financial side. And, you know, I, I think in terms of going forward, I think the solution with this specific thing is really going to be a much more integrated approach 
less hasty, more experimental. By that, I mean, for the last um, over a decade that I've been on boards, boards and corporations tend to see two people two sets of people coming from institutional investors. You get people who say, hey, I'm here to box tick on ESG. And then the next group comes in to focus specifically on the financials. Those are the portfolio managers. And I think it's that sort of separation in the minds of institutional investors, but also other groups, as well as perhaps in the way companies think, have thought about this new agenda and cultural frontier that has led to these different outcomes. And I think the more that these two groups become more integrated as one, the less we'll see these sorts of uh, schisms and uh, fissures emerge as as we have uh, in recent times. How do you think long-termism is best manifested from a board perspective? Does it ultimately come down to compensation as you write about? Yes. I mean, I, you know, I remain open-minded. For me, I think uh, compensation is a very, very straightforward lever. Um, hiring, obviously, promotion. Uh, these are all aspects of, uh, of how boards are able to really deliver on outcomes that they would like to see in ESG, but also in general performance of an organization. I think one area um, in comp that has been downplayed, but we're seeing it much more come to the fore, is malice and clawback, which is this idea that you know, once people go off into the sunset, they retire from the companies, it's now more and more possible for companies board to go back and say, wait a second, we've just found out that you are up to no good. You have to pay back uh, some of that money. I think, um, you know, McDonald's is a great example that's in the news right now. But I think that that's an underplayed lever. Uh, and I think that we'll see much more of that being uh, being used going forward. But beyond that, you know, I, as I, I mentioned earlier, I think in terms of long-term in, uh, incentive planning, I think really a lot of work has been done in that space. And I think it's actually very credible and should be commended uh, in terms of trying to in, ensure that uh, the CEO and the C-suite, as well as the organization as a whole, take on that long-term view and, and really embed a lot of these ESG long-term sustainability issues into their comp and their ability to be promoted. How do you think about it then from a different perspective, from a climate perspective? You know, most companies, when they plan, it's typically a business cycle of five to 10 years. Central banks even, most tend to plan three to five years out. But with an existential risk like climate change, we're talking about 10, 20, 30 plus years at the minimum in terms of planning. Is it purely an exercise in back-end loading solutions, or are you sort of starting to find more integrity around this very, very long-term horizon? Well, I think it's it's a little bit of both. When I think about how board members are judged, it's ultimately about judgment, good judgment. And it's the same way I would judge a CEO's efforts in something as long-term as uh, sustainability or climate change. What are the best efforts? Um, and, and ultimately, 10, 15, 20 years, 50 years from now, um, when that future board looks back, the future CEO looks back, I would want to be sure that they will say, hey, given the information that they had at that time, this CEO, this board made the best decision possible. And to my mind, the best decision possible today, given what we know, is some combination of really bedding down those metrics in a way that takes into account trade-offs. It's really about understanding the balance between public policy and innovation and making sure that there's transparency and consistency in how we think about these things. Those are the three things that I think are absolutely critical. And without those, I think we will be judged very harshly in the future. Hmm. 
How do you think boards are thinking about, you mentioned ESG, but not just as metrics of their own corporate behavior and performance, but even the effects of ESG-related capital flows. I think one of the interesting things that we've seen out of the European Union is regulation that does a couple of things, but one thing it does in the most explicit way is steer capital towards sustainable economic activities and away from unsustainable activities, which clearly creates risks and even opportunities depending on what kind of business you are. Yeah, you know, it it goes back to this fundamental view. I think that there's been a lot of work done, certainly in climate change in the last decade or half decade, which has got this sort of what I would call a, a negative risk mitigation lens. So everybody's been thinking about what is the downside risk of climate change, and and that and you know, don't get me wrong, that is a critical and an important piece of um, sustainability and really about thinking about these issues. However, I do think, uh, in fact, I know that no company can cut its way to growth. If we want companies to continue to evolve, if we want economic growth in society and human progress more generally, we're going to have to invest in those areas. And so if there, if, if there were a critique from the, uh, the current frame, um, certainly public policy frame, I think there's been too much emphasis on the downside, not enough emphasis on uh, in, and incentives um, for really generating or having that grander vision of really transforming and upgrading society in the way that we need to see it. Do you think that there is a growing need for ESG specialization on boards? Um, I don't because I think it's it's par for the course. I'm very sympathetic to the view that you want some people to be a butcher, baker, or candlestick maker. But in many respects, this is ESG is par for the course. It's about existential crisis. I don't know what an ESG expert looks like. Every board member should have an understanding of the need for transparency and consistency in these areas to be able to think about innovation and risk mitigation and, and, and really thinking about these, these broad trade-offs and, you know, how society and how we can ensure that these companies can continue to do what they do best. So I personally don't subscribe to an ESG specific professionalism, if that, if I can put it that way. I think any board member should have that and every board member should have that muscle strengthened in the world that we operate in. In the book, you write that the lack of gender diversity and underrepresentation of minorities reflects a deep-seated crisis of opportunity and access. And I'll be honest, as I read this, and I want to call myself naive, I even kind of gasped when you wrote about your own experience of perceived tokenism by an investor as a board member. How do we fix this? Well, I think the obvious answer is uh, the more commonplace that uh, having diverse board members, diverse uh, employees, the the easier it, it will become. I think one of the sort of uh, rules of thumb is that you need three people on a board. You might need three women before people stop thinking of it as a, a big issue. So if you have one, people think it's a token uh, or the, the, that, that the woman's a token. If you have two, people spend their time wondering whether the two women are getting along. And if you have only when you have minimum of three, do they stop caring about the specific gender and that you essentially reach a point of equality? I've always thought that that's an interesting rule of thumb. But the main point is, how do we fix it? You know, boards traditionally have taken the view that the best board members, the best type of board members are board members that come from the C-suite. And that has inherently meant that there's a challenge 
with respect to bringing diversity in terms of women and minorities into the boardroom because the pipeline of having women and or minorities has been relatively weak. But the more and more, the, to the extent that the issues that boards are, are grappling with has become broader, everything from science, obviously with the health pandemic, but also geopolitics and um, challenges around technology. I think it's widened the aperture for a, a number of, uh, of corporations who now appreciate and understand, well, wait a second. Yes, we might still want 40% of the board to be ex-CEOs or ex-C-suite, but there's a desperate need for people who have, um, who maybe didn't grow up in business, but have a really important perspective around um, organizational management or around uh, geopolitical challenges that the world will face. So I'm very optimistic. In fact, I'm a live example of an unconventional board member, and hopefully I'm adding value. I would like to think I am, but the point just being that that's an opportunity, a real opportunity for women and uh, a more diversity in the boardroom and as well as more generally, um, you know, in the current environment before we get that sort of bigger pipeline in years to come. There's a lot of talk about a post-pandemic global reset. And you hear refrains like build back better all over the place. And, you know, I'm going to ask you to put your economist hat on. What do you think are the necessary ingredients for that reset to produce more balanced economic growth, pushes back on protectionist leanings and reinforces public policy? The truth, Jason, is that we're headed into a, a continual, very challenged environment as far as I'm concerned. Um, there's no doubt about it that the massive stimulus that we've seen and obviously the fact that aggregate demand, which was shut down last year as we all stayed home, is now going to be reopened because we're getting vaccinated and we're being sent right back out there. But we should not confuse a rebound with a recovery. We, What we're seeing in the markets hitting new highs, etc., that is for sure a rebound. But um, that doesn't take away the fact that even before we headed into this uh, COVID environment last year, we were already dealing with a whole host of economic problems in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. We had impotent public policy, negative interest rates, lots of debt. We had a low growth forecasts, which really have not gone away. If you start to look at the post-2022 forecasts, um, such as those from the IMF, we start to see that drag again and a whole host of headwinds from uh, technology and the jobless underclass, massive demographic changes, income inequality, as well as broader inequality, climate change. All of these were drags before COVID hit and I'm afraid have not been resolved. What does that mean? You know, from my vantage point as an economist, I think we really need to think about these challenges of challenges of digitization, which could lead to greater unemployment as a specific example, and think about growth narrative that uh, is going to continue to be critical. I think that to the extent that people are thinking about growth and economic growth um, as being the, the backbone of that, I don't think there's enough of a conversation with respect to how we're going to deliver economic growth in a world that remains challenged. And to me, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I was hoping for something a little more optimistic after getting my first jab a few days ago. But uh, <laughs> Well, I can give you some optimism. <laughs> the, optimist, the optimistic view is that there are, I think, levers that public policy um, can draw. And I think technology, we've not yet seen what technology is going to do in public policy, things like education and healthcare. We've seen what it can do in consumerism and networks with social media. But I mean, I'm very hopeful that we'll see an uplift in areas of public policy. We've not yet seen the full force of China 
China, you know, is the only large economy that didn't slip into recession in 2020. I mean, I just saw their 18% growth forecasts. I mean, they are um, on fire. And I think um, now we know that China is now the biggest foreign direct investor, the biggest trading partner and the biggest lender to many countries developed and developing around the world. I think that that's a watch the space that could be a transformative for the world. And then, of course, the green agenda, the transition in energy, um, I think could be a real opportunity, again, if it's not just viewed from the lens of risk mitigation, but we start being much more aggressive and optimistic around uh, what this means for upside leverage and, and opportunities. So there you go. There are three. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> so last question, and this one comes from uh, the left field. So I, like you, am a marathoner, although I am not as quite as accomplished in terms of running the number of marathons. But I'm wondering, coming out of the pandemic, what's the first one on your to-do list? So I uh, I just uh, registered for New York again. Uh, I've done the New York Marathon twice, and I've also run the London Marathon. I love marathoning, but I'm not sure my body really likes uh, marathoning anymore. So I've registered for New York uh, this November 2021. Fingers are firmly crossed that I'm able to do it, um, but that's, that's the plan as it stands. Great. Good to hear. So it's been fascinating to discuss how the nature of board oversight is evolving, what that means in the context of greater pressure on socio-environmental issues and why calls to reform capitalism likely mean a turn towards a multi-stakeholder model and away from traditional shareholder centrism. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights today. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Dambisa Moyo, international economist and author of her new book, How Boards Work Out This Month. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Dambisa. This is fantastic. It's been a thrill. Thank you very much for hosting me. I really appreciate your questions and your interests. Once again, thanks to Dambisa Moyo for joining me on A Sustainable Future. With her latest book, How Boards Work and How They Can Work Better in a Chaotic World, now available, we're giving away copies to the best comments to this episode on social media. Just be sure to tag us and the podcast. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri-podcast, or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.